You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Old Town Bodega. Opened in October 2018, Old Town Bodega is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it coffee shop, cafe, and soon-to-be bar at 402 King Street East right here in Toronto. Inspired by the legendary bodegas of New York City and the speakeasies of the Prohibition era, Old Town Bodega, with its eclectic decor and music choices, really creates a truly familial atmosphere and the chillest of chill vibes. Just a stone throw away from my own neighborhood in the distillery, Old Town Bodega is probably my area's best kept secret. Before this ad, of course. I don't mean to blow up the spot, you guys, but everyone should experience sitting at the counter when Matt, the owner, hits you with a coffee and his latest consumable creation. Sure, you can get a coffee and a baked good anywhere in Toronto, but can you get $4 tacos filled with pork, patiently slow-roasted for six and a half hours? Or sandwiches, so lovingly handcrafted, it's as if your own mother just prepared your lunch? I didn't think so. This place is so nostalgically old school, they actually play tunes, no joke, with the same vintage Pioneer receiver my dad used to pump his records through. But the heart of this place isn't the homey accoutrements, it's Matt himself, the big, bearded, teddy bear of a man who makes every one of his customers feel like old friends who just stopped by for a nosh. You always hear... They just don't make them like they used to, except they do, and they're at Old Town Bodega on 402 King Street East. Follow it on Instagram at Old Town Bodega to see what kind of homestyle snacks Matt's been cooking up. Support the dream of my newest friend and tell him Aaron sent you. This episode of Speech Bubble is brought to you by the Amok Podcast, as in run amok, A-M-O-K. Amok is a fictional sci-fi comedy, 11 years in the making, in the vein of those classic radio plays like The Shadow or Superman. It stars Evelyn Halliday. 
a plucky administrator for the Earth Empire Utopia who dreams of becoming an astronaut and going to the moon. Sounds like a simple dream, right? Unfortunately, that dream becomes more distant than ever when she's named the president of the Earth Empire's Central Reserve and is bored stiff by the monotony of the job. Anyone would be. But then Earth's mayor makes up a false trade war with a fake moon emperor he names Mr. Lloyd Schneerman, and suddenly Evelyn is thrust closer to her lunar landing than ever before as a once utopian Earth begins to run amok. Sound cool? Well, Never Sleeps Network has an exclusive sneak preview just for you. Check it out. Welcome to the Earth Empire, voted best planet in a sweeping global ballot. What makes us so great? Money! That's right, lots of money. And we here at the Earth Empire Central Reserve make the planet's most versatile money money can buy. Support Earth's economy. Buy Earth money. Money. Oh, the choices you can have. The Earth Empire Central Reserve does not recommend not choosing money because that is one of the choices you do not have. Crazy, right? Amok promises all kinds of thrills, chills, and spills with lots of laughter and a little sex and violence for good measure because who doesn't love the sex and violence? It's a bizarre social satire with great lampooning of our current economic and political situation. And they need your help. The crew behind Amok wants to give you, our listeners, the opportunity to help produce the show. So check out their GoFundMe at GoFundMe.com slash AmokRadio. That's A-M-O-K Radio. Help produce the show, and when you do, tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on the Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Follow us on all social media at Pod. Uh, you can listen to us directly on NeverSleepsNetwork.com or uh, on any of the popular uh, podcatchers, the iTunes, the Apple Podcast, the Stitcher, the Google Play. Um, also, if you review our podcast, I will send you a free comic from my personal collection. Uh, we've had a lot of people get some great comics Uh, just that I send them based on their interest and sort of as a thank you for reviewing our show. So get on iTunes if you like what you hear and uh, give us a little review. Give us some support. It helps people find our show. Today, I have a sort of a multidisciplinary artist. This is a style of comicdom that's more like the highbrow, TCAF, artistic uh, comics. It's not your superhero comics. I'm talking to Mark LaLiberty. He's the curator of the Four Panel Project. If you go to fourpanel.ca, you'll see what I mean. As the editor of Carousel Magazine, which is sort of an art literary magazine in Canada, he created a supplement 
called uh, the Four Panel Project. And the Four Panel Project was a challenge for some of his artist friends, basically taking the four panels of a traditional comic strip and elevating them. It's not the, you know, uh, setup punchline that you would see in like a Garfield strip or like Family Circus. What he wants is he wants to take some avant-garde comic artists and get them to use just that one constriction of the four panels in whatever way they see fit. And a lot of them are published on fourpanel.ca. You know, sometimes the four panels are like windows, like the images are spread over the four panels. There's a lot of avant-garde things going on here. Uh, they've done a lot of uh, museum exhibitions. The four panel project have also been collected in two uh, standalone volumes. And uh, you can check them out in book form. Uh, a lot of famous local artists have been featured uh, Michael Camo, Michael DeForge, uh, Fiona Smith, who you might know as the... She's very famous for doing the Sneaky D's sign at uh, Sneaky D's. Very iconic for those who live in Toronto. So we're very happy to have Mark on. He's also the... Sort of the winner of like a landmark obscenity case between 1989 and 1992... Uh, it's called the Head Trip Scandal, and uh, it's it's because of his case that a really important precedent was sent was set as far as obscenity in in Canada. So we're honored to speak with him, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. It's it's great to have you. I mean, you also do your own work with like Koyama. You've done um, subtitles like Brick, 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 and and that sort of thing. But like I said, you're sort of on the avant garde side of comics. So I want to get to know you a little bit better before I get right into four panel and what's, what's happening with that. And, you know, some of the artists that you're now publishing as part of uh, pop noir editions, your, your publishing company, but how did you first get involved in comics? How did you get interested? Uh, what was your early life like? Sure. Well, I'm an only child and I lived in Windsor, Ontario. Uh, which is just on the border of Detroit. Um, Detroit actually had a really incredible sort of network of comic shops that I discovered when I was an early teenager. Um, and it was just at a time when the black and white explosion was happening. So I would go to the States once or twice a year and just sort of um, my jump from sort of Marvel to DC to like alternative comics happened really quickly as a youth. And... Um, uh, so I really got interested in in that comic scene as as a as a kind of early teenager, and uh, one of the things that like I strangely noticed was that um, a lot of the comics were being printed in Windsor, Ontario, where I was from, at a place called Prenny Print in Litho. So not really knowing how things worked, I thought, well, this will save me the trip from going to the states. I'll just call the print shop and see if I can just get things through them directly. And of course, you can't do that, and they explain that to me. And, uh, you know, they, they're printed in Windsor and ship back out and almost never come back. 
But it kind of sparked my interest really early on in sort of publishing and zine culture and sort of the idea of putting things together on my own. And I always had this goal in mind to sort of do something at Prenny, even though, you know, I was still at the time like 13 or 14 kind of thing. So I did sort of jump into zine culture. And uh, I guess a few years later, I, you know, published a few things uh, more like art books at Prenny, but we kept up, up a good relationship. And I guess uh, I was sort of off and running, kind of publishing my own things and uh, and sort of aiming at print in a way. Yeah. Did they let you use the facilities to publish your own things, or just well? Like- I mean, it's a professional, like high-end print shop. They right. no they no longer exist, but for for a period of about ten years, they were sort of where everything was printed, like Cerebus and all of the kind of black and white books. All seemed to kind of end up at Prenny, and then as sort of like the scene changed, and I think. The print demands got more towards color and a little sort of slicker. I think they sort of fell behind in a way. Um, no, but they were very friendly to me to sort of nurture my interest, uh, you know, took me through the print shop and sort of explained to me how things sort of happened. And, you know, they'd give me free copies of off offcuts of old Cerebus phone books and things like that. And uh, yeah, so I think that it really sparked a kind of interest in me pretty early on in sort of comics culture and in particular kind of alternative comics. Nice. So where did you go from there? Like once you sort of that spark was lit, what what kind of happened? Yeah, well, I guess my life got really kind of complicated in a fairly quick uh, number of months. Like I was sort of ending high school and I was a little deep into zine culture and I'd published two or three things on my own, including something called Head Trip, which was a zine I was putting out like two or three times a year. And uh, I one of the people I, I was publishing... Um, at the time was a young artist named Mike Diana from from the USA. And uh, I sort of got in into this weird obscenity moment where where suddenly, you know, for whatever reason, um, the, the Windsor police uh, sort of started paying a lot of attention to my zine. And um, although they really didn't have any kind of clear sense of what was obscene and what wasn't, they sort of, you know, had the power to sort of take a stab at that. And then suddenly we had a weird court case that had to happen. And uh, luckily, um, Toronto was very good to me. It was a bad city. Windsor was a bad city for that to happen in. But um, the Toronto art scene and like the early first version of The Beguiling, uh, sort of they really sort of stepped up and kind of helped. Uh, I had a lawyer named Dan Brodsky from Toronto who who took on my case for like legal aid. And, um, you know, so he'd like fly to Windsor and we'd do these sort of, you know, moments in, in court and there kept being delays for a decision for almost about a year and a half. Cause at the time there was actually weirdly a lot of obscenity things happening in Canadian culture. It's kind of a little bit like the moment now where people are a little more like oversensitive to certain topics and, uh, um, Those kind of things were just happening in the culture. And uh, so anyways, I I did end up winning. That's the short um, end of it. Like I I was victorious uh, thanks to like a really good defense team and uh, a lot of support from the Toronto comics community. Um, and, but, at, but in the meantime, I had sort of gone to art school and sort of started trying to continue my life because this happened over about a two year period. And I guess I fell a little bit away from comics for a period and kind of got more interested in fine arts and gallery work. And, and then later on in my life, they kind of remerged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with the Hedrup scandal, 
why did they go after your comic specifically? Like, what was Head Trip like as a comic? Yeah. And how did they find you? It's a really sort of strange story. I mean, um, like, the the reality is, is that there was, there were two people in Windsor who were kind of youth, you know, youth in, in the scene that I was in, and they kind of formed a bit of a relationship and kind of dropped out of school and ran off together. And their parents just sort of saw the magazine in their room and thought it was really, you know, had things in it that they'd never sort of seen. And it was kind of like covering like alternative electronic music culture and like, uh, you know, extreme comics, like underground type things. Um, And uh, just a range of things. There was even like poetry and fiction and was just kind of publishing a lot of different people from the kind of mail art and alternative comics network. And um, but yeah, their neighbor ended up being this police officer and it just they sort of flipped it to him and he he took a real offense to it and sort of it became a little bit of a mission for him to to sort of you know I guess do something about about this problem he thought you know like he had he had suddenly discovered zine culture effectively and just was sort of like shocked at you know that people could go to a photocopy machine and say whatever they wanted or publish whatever they wanted so um, you know, he took some stabs at guesses at what, you know, assessing the work from a kind of artistic and kind of, you know, cultural standpoint. And he was very wrong as to, um, you know, what was permissible in our culture. But nevertheless, we had to go through this sort of procedure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, they like they took it on. So obviously at the time, the legal system had an interest in this sort of thing. Maybe, maybe Canada was like trying to figure out who they wanted to be from that standpoint? Or? Yeah, there was there was a, a, a kind of landmark um, case going on in Toronto with an artist named Eli Langer. Uh, there was uh, there were several bookshops in the on the west coast that were having similar problems. So so there was just this moment where there was um, something called project pornography was happening in Canada, and like it was all sort of swept under this weird umbrella of you know untrained officers sort of. Um, trying to decide what's obscene in our culture. And it's kind of like the Frederick Wortham thing of like, you know, he sort of misappropriated your comic as contributing to the deviance of his neighbors that they were already experiencing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was, it was just another one of those moments. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because we are in Canada, I mean, it's it's not really a bad story for me. I mean, it was certainly stressful at the time, but it was uh, interesting. And it's something that not a lot of other artists have kind of gone through. And, you know, as a Canadian in a kind of open system, you know, there were support networks that came to my rescue and helped me sort of defend my kind of creative um, uh, circle or whatever. And other artists should be thankful, at least to the precedent that the case set, right? Because now it's harder to you know, bring up obscenity thanks to your winning that case, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly at the time it was it was definitely viewed as sort of important. And, uh, you know, I think that um, uh, whenever clarification happens at sort of a court level, it's, it's sort of a good thing in terms of um, allowing artists to know what they can and cannot do. Right. And the, but the artist that you were publishing, Mike Diana, wasn't so lucky, right? He didn't win his case? Yeah. So Mike had a completely different experience. Um, he was, uh, he was in the uh, uh, Florida. Um, and uh, in particular, he was in a, a city that was quite like a lot of old people. And um, his, you know, his defense team wasn't sort of, um, 
the judge didn't allow a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm only actually finding this out like 20 years later, really. Like oh, okay. Mike and I sort of lost contact and it was kind of like pre, you know, Facebook and things like that. And, uh, you know, even at the time, it was just sort of suggested that we don't really like it was better to not communicate um, while my court case was going on. and uh, Right, like early 90s. Yeah, exactly, area. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the short of it, and there's plenty of information about his sort of weird, weird court case um, floating online, including a very recently uh, made doc- a Kickstarter-funded documentary that has, I think, just come out, like, within the last six months or so, sort of documenting his whole experience as the only person in the United States to ever be convicted of obscenity, apparently. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you know what the documentary is called or? Well, the, the zine he did was called Boiled Angel. Um, okay. I don't actually recall what the, what the doc is, but okay. I'm sure but Boiled Angel is in the title. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for absolutely. sure. Okay, cool. Like that, that's interesting. So you, as this is happening, you're sort of moving on with your life. You're going on to different uh, projects and that sort of thing. Did this uh, tr- did this trial in this case that you went through did it did it change your outlook on like how you felt about comics or how did it transform you as a person? Yeah, you know, I mean, like looking back at it, I I sort of think it it did in a way. Like I I I was sort of a little bit disinterested in comics for a short period um, while I was in art school, and you know, um, thought I was leaving it behind in a way. But I mean, it really kind of embedded itself in different ways in into my art career um, just within a few short years. And, uh, you know, there were many years where I didn't really look at sort of publishing straight comics as sort of a thing, but like a lot of my gallery work, um, in fact, still, you know, did weird appropriations with comics or built off of like a comics language. Um, like I did these weird um, sort of like scan animations of bits of comics and I I would, you know, abstract them and turn them into projected videos and things like that. And then of course, you know, the the comics world has opened up incredibly in the last 20 years. So a lot of the kind of like more fine art concerns that a lot of like embeds in a lot of my work is really present in a lot of like the, you know, what you called earlier, the kind of um, the TCAF sort of aesthetic or whatever, like the kind of more art art comics Mm -hmm. sort of um, scene. Mm -hmm. So that scene makes a lot of sense to me and I've been really participating in it for a number of years. And you you never went into like traditional comics? You were always sort of part of the avant-garde? You It seems like, you know, from Head Trip, you never sort of deviated from that particular vein of of comics. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, one of the kind of like notable things that, that sort of happened, I think, even as an early teenager is for the most part, I really like lost a, an interest in superhero comics. Um, you know, and there are things that I read. I mean, even now, like it's, that's, that's not a blanket statement, but you know, on, on the whole, it's, it's the kind of least interesting aspect of the comics world for me. And, you know, meanwhile, the culture has gotten completely obsessed with it and all our movies are about superheroes and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's, there is this kind of tip of the iceberg sort of thing going on in comics where there are all these other tendencies and you know abstract comics and 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 comics about you know all kinds of different topics and and biography and so all of that sort of interests me um yeah was it hard to uh maintain a lifestyle as an artist sort of independent i know that it's it's kind of a struggle a lot of the time 
to to try to be an artist as like a career or how to define yourself as an artist what was that life like like you you were doing avant-garde things but that can it can be hard to like you know get a living together uh, based off that well i mean i have to sort of you know retrospectively say that like winning that case didn't really harm (laughs) my early career like i think a lot of i would notice that no matter what kind of work i was doing and again even a lot of my early gallery work had nothing to do with the tendencies of the things I was exploring in zine culture or comics in general, but like every time I'd have a show somewhere and I showed in galleries all across Canada for about an eight year period, there was a real kind of rich uh, period where I, I just had a lot of shows. Um, you know, they'd always sort of mention the, the obscenity trial. I mean, in, in sort of the same way it kind of came up in today's interview, like, you know, 25 years later, mm-hmm. people are interested, right? So um, it definitely did help, I guess, uh, sort of create a certain kind of buzz around the work I was doing. And, uh, you know, it's not to say being a professional visual artist um, is not a struggle, but, uh, you know, I feel People like, were paying attention more. Yeah, I feel like I've had, you know, a good, a decent amount of shows and, and just keep persevering and doing new things yeah so what speaks to you about comics as a medium because with four panel like that's you're putting the medium and the form at center stage so what speaks to you uh not in terms of content but in terms of what comics can do sure well you know i mean um the kind of idea of sequences is is existent really you know, only in comics in a, in a certain kind of way. I mean, when you do work for the gallery, they, things tend to be like singular ideas and singular works. Uh, I'm not really a painter, but like you can think of that sort of like expression of a painting as a kind of singular idea. Um, and, uh, you know, film is like a, a string of images that, you know, we lose sort of um, like consciousness of like the the movement in a way like that they're they're actually just a series of still images being put together but when comics it's sort of very obvious and and that kind of sequencing is what really does interest me right like well what can you say in like you know in in the instance of four panel and like four like equal sized like beats in a way um yeah right and you get to play with like the passage of time because i think what happens between the panels is also sure, like as a, important, right? Like blood in the gutter or whatever, like as 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 uh, has been as it's been called. Right. Cool. Um, so, how did you get to Carousel? How did um, you know four panel begin? But first, you have to you have to get to the magazine, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've described a kind of like like interest in print that sort of established itself. So I kind of tried to keep with that all through my my working career and uh whenever i ended up at a gallery or you know like i i worked at several galleries um as day jobs i would always be very interested in um uh the publication sort of side of it the documentation of shows and i learned to design books and um so when i went for my master's at the university of guelph again in visual arts uh carousel was something that was um already existing but sort of in a bit of a slump moment and uh somebody wrangled me in and as i said i'm interested in print and so um i sort of uh put some time into the magazine and then within a few years it was sort of like oh i can really run with this magazine and 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 they they were interested in me doing that and uh i had been designing it and i had sort of been the art um coordinator at some point and 
I'm equally interested in literature and poetry and things like that. And so the magazine sort of fulfilled a lot of my needs. Um, and it was uh, just always been sort of a little side project that I've kind of had going. We only do two issues a year and I've been at it for about 10 years at this point, or maybe even a little more. So maybe 20 issues or so. Um, and uh, it's it affords me a lot of opportunity to just, um, you know, work with a lot of different creators and bring all of their voices together, including increasingly a lot of comics oriented materials. Like we do interview a lot of cartoonists um, in the in the magazine and um, we publish uh, 16 page 16 panels 16 strips um, four panel strips in each issue called the four panel supplement who have you talked to oh I've interviewed uh, within carousel I've interviewed like Seth uh, Jason um, very recently in our new issue we have Leo Quervex who's a f- an artist from France Um who just came out with a book called The Immersion Project, uh, which is a great book. Um, we've interviewed um, uh, Cole Klosser, um, uh, Patrick Kyle. Uh, so, like, w- we did a feature, actually. Our previous issues, like, got a real big Koyoma conund- uh, uh, Press um, feature. Right, because they're they're ending, right, soon? Well, Koyama were ending, and we had sort of we were privy to that, but it was a little bit before the announcement. So there are hints of that in the in the in the um, feature, but it was actually celebrating their tenth anniversary at that point, um, which they were just crossing. Right, yeah. right, yeah. And Koyama is like a really independent publisher, uh, again of avant-garde stuff. Uh, if for those who are unfamiliar, um, Canada sort of has this rich history of art literary magazines. Um, so when you describe Carousel, like for those who are unfamiliar with it or who have never explored that kind of scene, how do you describe it to people? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we 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 talk about um, you know poetry and fiction, and uh, then you've of course got graphic fiction. So maybe you've got comics poetry, and like where all of those things overlap is the zone where we're where where we're really interested in being. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of times when, like, straight poets and comic artists do talk. Um, but we actually oftentimes facilitate that conversation, even by sort of matching up poets that we might be already featuring in the issue um, to sort of give us a sort of short form little comic haiku sort of an approach or uh, poem and then kind of finding a comic artist who might want to actually draw to that. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of like, you know, dialogue, putting these kind of creators in dialogue. What do you think it is about this country that like sort of, they always seem to come up and, and as a journalist who is interested in feature writing and took my major at Ryerson, you know, we, we learned a lot about magazines and there's this whole segment of these high quality, literary, artistic, only come out every so often, uh, you know, journals that, that come out. And I guess I guess you guys are part of that. What is it about Canada that allows that sort of thing to to flourish, would you say? Well, I'm not sure that there's anything specific about Canada. I mean, I think that you see similar magazines uh in you know certainly in the USA That's but true. I mean in Europe as well um, Canada has a kind of um, you know uh, like a weird geography that I think uh, you know maybe does impact that in a way where you know you want these kind of 
places where voices can all kind of come together into one spot. I mean, I think that that's changing a little bit with internet culture and a lot of the new magazines are, you know, electronic versions of, you know, you're not seeing as many new startups that are doing like small and um, like low you know, my, I guess micro journals, that's what we're kind of called. Right, because it's sort of risky with like the death of print. and. Well, sort of you know, I don't really, I don't really believe in the death okay. of print myself. But I mean, you know, certainly comics culture is like totally like taking that term and like, you know, fighting against it. Right. right. I mean, I think comics are like more beautiful than ever. And they're they like are. more, you know, like they're people are very much, very willing to pay 40 or 50 or $60 for a gorgeous graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, maybe it's like the kind of the pamphlet things that are changing in comics culture and newspapers that are changing in the larger culture and like these sort of smaller, mm-hmm. like less things you don't want to keep, essentially, you might just buy a digital version of. But personally, yeah. I don't really read digital comics other than just, you know, scrolling through Tumblr and like looking at new artists. Right, right. Yeah. And like, I guess this le- sort of legacy media is changing. It's still coming out, but it's coming out in different forms. And, you know, like the the scene, obviously, for comics is stronger than ever, especially in, in Toronto and all segments of the industry from like mainstream comics to independent comics and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's... Definitely. And, yeah. and then there's like all this material, you know, like that is constantly being collected, right? Mm. I mean, like, and... You know, <laughs> yeah. that that's really interesting. Like, you, just that you can get all the, like, Novana comics in one, um, you know, anthology now or whatever. You know, somebody's gone and found all those original issues and scanned them and put them together and kickstarted it. And right. it, and it ends up being this great book that you can own. And Toronto seems to be in a unique position because we have, it seems like we have a comic store for every type of comic taste. And with places like The Beguiling championing you know like the the more avant-garde comics and and tcaf being so recognized it seems like you know toronto is a particular hub for for this sort of thing where other places might not be i think toronto is a great place to be for any comic artist yeah Mm, absolutely certainly cool so i want to get into carousel i guess four panel started as like a supplement in the back of carousel magazine were you were you in charge of putting carousel together back then yeah yeah certainly it was just it was just like we had no sort of comic um section but we had been increasingly sort of working with comic artists or focusing on that side of the kind of that facet of culture and i sort of was thinking well i kind of want to do something that's like a like an artsy version of like something you'd find in a newspaper and so how do you do that and it's just like oh well what if we just lock a constraint to like you know create a a strip template so that all the artists do the exact same size of strip and just sort of say you can do anything in these four panels and um so that's sort of how it started i just blanketed a bunch of artists that i knew who i thought would be interested in it of course they all were and then it sort of spread from there. Like we got a lot of attention. I mean, Carousel has its sort of limited audience and the attention was like a little larger than what it might normally gather. Um, and so I started fourpanel.ca to sort of like expand from there to be like, okay, well, we're only publishing twice a year and we've only got room for like 16 strips in each issue. So, but we're getting a lot more artists who want to sort of step up and play at this game, so to speak. So the site, I think... Um, 
sort of was uh, able to accommodate that quite easily. Like right now we just put out a strip, one strip a week. Um, and it's just like a random person and it's always a singular idea and you just, you know, you can spend time on the site and look back and see the hundred or more strips that are there, or you can just check in every week and see what the new thing is. Mm-hmm. The four panel format is kind of iconic in, I guess, like strip, like newspaper strips and that sort of thing. But I'm still going to ask you why four panels? It could be more, you know, like strips aren't always constricted to four panels. So why did you choose the layout as the particular constraint? You could have chosen any challenge related to comics. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, again, thinking to the newspaper um, format, it was just sort of like you kind of look and, you know, like there's whatever. I don't even look very often anymore, but like Garfield and Dilbert and all these things. And visually, it's kind of a bit of a mess, right? Like they're odd size panels and like everybody's like, you know, they're not unified in any way because all the cartoonists are just working on their own sort of pace and sort of mode so I guess the art director and me sort of wanted to neaten that up and uh you know for me like the four panel format is like a kind of classic format and so I just thought okay like I've got to sort of pin this down and like I think four gives you more room than three um which would have been the other it might have been three panel but we we did go for four panel and um you know we said to the artists like make sure you don't use that first panel as a kind of title panel in a way right like so we always ask that they title the strip and like use the space of the four panels yeah no establishing Um, shots yeah no establishing shots no like title title card or anything like that and um for a very long time it was always locked to a horizontal presentation we've since kind of loosened some of those rules as you know you move forward and you want to give people space to play so um in print like in particular in the anthologies that we put out um which by the way aren't actually reprints of anything online it's all kind of original content when we go to the book form okay we take artists who are seem to really be kind of um like excited about the kind of constraint that we've given them. And we sort of say, well, you know, you've been doing these singular strips for us. What would you do in 16 pages where like the four panel strip is still kind of like a, a spine or a, like a, like a, a beat in a way, but like you can do a whole bunch of strips that have no kind of connection to one another, or you can treat it as a kind of like flowing narrative where every strip is kind of a piece of that narrative. Or again, we give them room to kind of really experiment within the context of the book, but they do create these kind of completely new sort of sections for, for the, for the mag, for the anthologies that are not really, so we don't really mix the online and the in print. Right. They're all original, which is, which is cool. Yeah. Um, tell me about the process. I guess, uh, when you, when you want, if I'm an artist that wants to do this for carousel or, or for the, the, the anthologies, what do I do? How do I go about doing it? What what happens in order for me to create this for Carousel or the anthology? Sure, sure. Well, you know, like early on, there it was there was a lot of kind of like curatorial chasing in a way where I was like sort of like doing a lot of looking and inviting people and trying to convince them to, you know, participate. Um, as it sort of rolled forward and once you have a sort of site established and a kind of brand that's in place, so to speak, you know, people do start to get interested. So I do get artists who are kind of just contacting me and usually I'll peek at their work and, um, uh, you know, as long as it, it feels like that there is room for them, like they, they seem like they have a bit of a kind of um, experimental side to their kind of creative 
soul, so to speak. Um, I'll usually just sort of say, if you want to give things a go, let's try something. And it's really easy to kind of be generous about space when you're publishing online. So um, we tend to try to um, just give people room to give something a go. Um, and, uh, you know, there are like challenges to that approach and it's become kind of a little more difficult to do. Like I've, you know, dabbled with, I mean, with Carousel, the relationship with Carousel in that section, we're able to pay artists and online, you know, last year I did a whole year where I was, you know, I thought I would launch a Patreon and I guess I didn't really put much energy into like that side of it, but I did promise all the artists sort of payment. And so I just ended up paying the whole year pretty much out of my pocket. And, um, and, uh, you know, right now I'm just trying to rethink how to handle that, right? Like, you know, I'd like to pay everybody. And at the same time, if people are just inviting themselves in, so to speak, it's a matter of how you sort of balance that in a way. So, so the relationship with Carousel is very good because I, you know, we have a kind of bit of like a kind of like funded base there to sort of work with. That's awesome. Yeah. I noticed that the panels are uniform. So when an artist is actually putting like the pencil to paper, yeah. do they, are they given like a sheet with the panels on them or do they create the panels themselves? Yeah, we, you or? know, when someone sort of, uh, when, when when we agree to sort of like have someone give it a go, we provide them some, some template options and uh, sort of a set of basic guidelines just to reiterate what we are and aren't looking for. But if artists want to kind of redraw those panels to, you know, to have that kind of individual hand sort of approach, um, we we tend to allow it as long as they strict stick with the constraint. The constraint's been really interesting because what it effectively does is like, you know, I'd like to see everything, everybody who participates in four panel as a community, but really they're just giving a little bit of their time and energy creatively. But just by sort of sticking to that template, it really makes everything seem more unified and like the ideas between strips start to kind of gel a bit. And, um, and so I think that kind of like the constraint is like a really healthy like way of just keeping the project. Like it's, for me, it's what differentiate differentiates between a four panel f-o-u-r which anybody can do and a four panel with the number four which is the brand which is kind of your brand yeah right? exactly mm-hmm. exactly okay. okay and so with like with the four panel project and 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 stuff like that i mean you you mentioned uh kind of earlier in the conversation that like you in the in the actual anthologies you only have four artists contributing and mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that want to do it so how do you i mean part of the curation or like a big job of the creation curation I imagine is restricting who gets in and who doesn't right yeah. you have a lot of people to choose from how do you decide who gets published and who doesn't and who is good for the next one or sure sure mm-hmm. well you know so for the first book it was really um, finding um, three other artists uh, I did pers- participate in the first book as an artist um, and then I, I really just looked at the people and it was much more early on in in the kind of project so there were less people involved and I just looked at people who really seemed like they were doing interesting things mm-hmm. on the site for a while and could maybe give it a go so we worked with uh, Jesse Jacobs Mark Connery who's a Toronto-based artist and an American artist named Anoush Shestra um, actually, two years later, when we did um, the four, second four-panel book, we sort of broke the rule of this idea of four artists. Um, effectively, it's almost two books in one. It's seven artists. And we have, like, Fiona Smith. Uh, we have Sampler Man, who's from France and does these kind of collage comics. 
uh, and a range of other artists. And um, in that in that book, we were just trying to like find people who, you know, like I don't think there's two artists in there who approach comics in the same in the same way. Um, and that's sort of what we're trying to like do. And, you know, with that book, we try to do more of a, like a gender balance and, you know, some of these other sort of concerns are, are embedded in the artists we're inviting as well. Right. And when you're doing a anthology, at least some of them have to be a name like JC Jacobs has been in, in the New Yorker, that sort of thing. Like these have to be artists that attract attention. At least some of them do. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. From a, like you're, you're, you're putting in, I'm personally putting in a lot of money into printing the book right. and uh, you want to do make, make sure that there's going to be some kind of commercial draw to it. So yeah, we've gotten, you know, in each there's sort of like a few bigger names that I think uh, are, you know, that I personally love the work of. I mean, there wouldn't be there otherwise, but are also, you know, strategically you're kind of trying to, um, uh, just like any other anthology kind of book, you're trying to bring, you know, bring some new eyes into the work based on, you know, the most popular people, I guess, involved. Right. And you, you kickstarted the first one. You raised $6,000, right? We did. Yeah. It was a very, very successful Kickstarter. Um, like we went slightly over what we were aiming for and it really helped to get that book completely, you know, paid for almost up front and to pay, pay the artists, of course, and all of that. And for the second book, I, I just didn't have the energy or time at the moment to do it. And I, and I did feel like I, you know, had the, the ability to publish it and, and distribute it. And so I just, uh, I just dove in headfirst to the book. Uh, but I think we'll probably look to Kickstarter or some fundraising platform again in the future when, when it's necessary. Do you have like a particular release schedule? Like you want to do one every two years, every one year? Like what? Yeah, we're starting to work on the third four panel book. And right now it feels like once every two years makes a lot of sense. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, one of the other things I've been doing is to start publishing solo graphic novels. Right. And I wanted like to get that. to that. Yeah. yeah. Because not everybody gets to be in the anthology, but there's a lot of talented artists. So you want to showcase their work, right? And, you know, work that has nothing to do with that constraint right. of the four panels. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for sure. Okay. So tell me a little bit about, uh, these projects. It, it's Ben O'Neill and, and Jessica Bartram. Uh, these are the sort of the first, um, you know, the, the like incubator uh, graphic novels that have stemmed out of the four panel project, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I published uh, the four panel books, the anthologies under an, an imprint called Pop Noir Editions. Okay. I'm continuing to move forward with that um, under the, as a publisher, um, putting out graphic novels. So yeah, we have a Toronto artist named Ben O'Neill, um, who uh, is putting out a book called Apologetica. And, uh, you know, like fans of Michael DeForge and artists like that, I think would probably really be interested in this work. I mean, Ben is obviously uh, a very talented and, 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 you know, slightly weird cartoonist. And it's a little charming little anthology of weird comics. Uh, Jessica Bartram's book is a bit bigger. It's like uh, more than 200 pages full color. Um, and she does watercolor. So it's a real like intensely, um, uh, 
creative book in terms of her 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 visual approach um they're not really completely comics proper it's like it's like stories with illustrations and leans into comics quite heavily and that book is called Ghostwater Kiss mm-hmm. and it actually collects um several of uh her kind of like zine culture kind of self-published sort of things and uh, in some cases she's redrawn them and in other cases we're reprinting them completely um, and then she's done a whole bunch of new work for the book as well. And yeah, so it's b- excited about both the books. How did you select those projects as your first uh, foray? Well, I guess, you know, certainly I had made a decision to sort of keep my eye open. And um, I was aware of of some of Ben's work. Uh, both of them have appeared in the four panel world, so to speak. So, um, you know, I've once once artists are sort of in that world i i do try to pay attention to what they're working on and um yeah i just really liked the books that the little zines that jessica was was releasing and um and i thought uh you know like i wanted to take a larger look at her work and when we when we talked there was just more of it than i even expected so I wasn't sure I was going to commit to such a big book with her but uh the work is just so great i couldn't i could not uh I couldn't pass it up. And for Ben, I'm just really excited about like his growth as an artist. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think it was great to work with him. For those who've never seen four panel, what are some of your, your favorite things, like your favorite sort of artists, like favorite approaches to yeah. the, to the medium and, and that sort of thing. Like, what do you look for? What, what gets you jazzed about what is actually, there what's your favorite style yeah you know it's interesting i mean a part of the my my kind of curatorial sort of position is that like i really want to be surprised um by what an artist sort of sends me in a way so we try to work with people who aren't going to um necessarily kind of feed us the same thing each time Mm -hmm. and um and, you know, I know that in their own kind of like larger careers, they are more kind of focused and sort of locked down to, you know, developing an aesthetic. Uh, in a weird way, I sort of think we kind of give artists this moment to sort of like t- try something or play. And uh, so, you know, like I would say that I'm not looking for anything in particular, but I'm just looking to be surprised. Right. And a lot of the strips are sort of indescribable, particularly in like an audio medium so i would encourage people to go check out like fourpanel.ca and check out uh, you know ben and jessica's work for sure you guys are launching uh those books at tcaf right they're at the printer right now and yeah we're we will be on the main floor of tcaf uh deb- debuting both apologetica and Ghostwater kiss that's awesome i know that comics are a collaborative medium by nature but they're also simultaneously kind of solitary because you're an artist in your room doing your project and you have sort of this sort of overseer position do you like being in that position like how do you balance you know sort of your curation mind with the own work with your own work that you want to do right well as an artist i do spend a lot of time in my studio alone um and uh, like i'm a pretty slow producer and i'm i'm I work on a lot of things at once. So sometimes projects take me like seven years and I just don't show anybody. Like I don't use the internet much to like show the new work in progress um, as things are happening. So I actually do really like opportunities to get out with other artists. And um, 
you know, I go to kind of the occasional drawing night that a friend hosts on certain Mondays um, where she just has people over at her place and, you know, I'll go hang out there. And um, actually in the summers, um, I guess as an offshoot of the four panel project, we do this um, like weird kind of cottage residency that we've been doing for three or four years now where we bring a whole bunch of cartoonists to this like two floor kind of large com uh, uh, cottage sort of space and it's got privatized rooms and things like that and uh, it is an artist residency um, uh, not always for comic artists but I sort of pitched them this idea of us doing this like yearly residency and they do like they do like us and we do go do it so like Dakota McFadzine, uh, um, Josh Rosen, like a, a range of people in Toronto come out almost every year and we all go at the same time and we hang out and work individually and kind of hang out and talk about comics and play games at, at night. So um, that's sort of an extension of the four panel culture in a way, like getting these moments to, I don't know, like jam and play um, as artists. By being able to be sort of this omnipotent presence in the like curation of the four panel project, how does that influence your own work? Because you get to see what's coming out. You get to be the decider while you're also working on your own stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, my work is so like, I guess, off scene or whatever, like in, in terms of like my interests that I, I don't really feel that it like influences me all that much. I am working on a four panel book. So that's one of the projects I have. And that's probably where the influence is sort of the greatest in a way, right? Like where I'm, you know, trying to dialogue with that form and the same way other artists are. So naturally there might be things that, you know, spark little ideas or whatnot. Mm. But I'm also working on like a, like a, like a blackout comic. <laughs> uh, Explain. Like, well, you know, so in, in the poetry world, you have these things called like blackout poems, right? Like, or, you know, people will take like a newspaper article or like a, like a found text and they like cross out, you know, all um, these different words until they're left with a poem. Yeah, sort of I've, I've done that kind of thing. You know, people have done yeah. it and it's this sort of yeah. exercise. And it just came to me a few years ago that no one's ever really done that with comics. So I've been just like like finding pages that in some way sort of speak to me and like completely reducing them down and rewriting them based on the language that is available on that particular page. And just kind of like a reductive, weird art process to like um, found comics pages. And I kind of look at them as somewhere between like comic poems and like there's no narrative that strings everything together. But, you know, it certainly visually holds together as as a book. And I haven't really shopped it anywhere, but I've got about 80 pages mm -hmm. <laughs> done. And it's sort of, um, it's an interesting process. Mm -hmm. um, that Yeah. Because a lot of people listening here are more probably familiar with like mainstream comics and that sort of thing. Yeah. I wanted to get your impression of, you know, how you feel sort of being on the fringe of an already fringe medium, like in terms of the types of comics that you do, the types of projects that you're pursuing, the, like you're sort of a niche of a niche, right? Sure. Uh, is that a, is that a comfortable position to be in? Is it a sort of rebellious, you know, punk kind of position? Well, I'm not sure that it's, I mean, obviously it is a choice, but, right. you know, at the same time, it's like, it's a choice built on 20 years of just sort of like doing, you know, things slightly left of center, so right. to speak. And, you know, then your, your own sort of like machinery kind of like gets you moving somewhere and, and then suddenly you're off in this 
direction that other people aren't quite going. And and the, the great moments are that like actually there's tons of people doing work that is, you know, quite similar to what I'm doing or right. like interested in abstraction and interested in like non-narrative or implied narrative or experimental forms. Um, so I don't feel like I'm like alone in the world, so to speak. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah, it's just that a lot of it isn't getting quite the attention that like, you know, the mainstream comics are getting. I mean, sort of yeah, thing. well, you know, like like every poet knows that if they write a a like a narrative book of fiction, they'll do better. Right. And every comic artist knows that if you do a superhero comic, you're going to do what much better sort right. of thing. Like a, yeah. <laughs> it might even be adapted into a movie. We all make these choices, right? Like yeah. if, and if we're choosing not to, then you're, you're sort of accepting the frame uh, of, you know, this potential audience that you are really interested in dialoguing with. Right. Right. Yeah. I wanted to talk about uh, shuffle because you, you took the four panel concept and expanded it to animation, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a really fun project. Um, well, we'd done a few like little twitchy kind of comics on, on the four panel site, right? Like, and it just, it occurred to me and a few of the artists that at some point uh, when we started publishing online, that that was the one thing that you could achieve that you couldn't do in print. Like you could have things move or, or shift or, or, or use that, that four panel frame to, to kind of it, you know, as a kind of like a flat animation space. In right. A way. Even like the technology, like flash. Or, yeah, exactly. You know. Exactly. So, um, so we did some of those online and then it sort of just sat in my mind that it's like, well, this could really then therefore work in a gallery somehow. And, um, I think I pitched it to one or two places unsuccessfully. And then eventually, um, the Ting Fest in London, Ontario, which is like a mini version of TCAF really. It's, uh, uh, happens just before TCAF each year, and it's um, it's uh, you know, they have a gallery component, and they have like a a lot. Of, it's it's a, it, it revolves around comics culture completely. Uh, I was involved in their first year as an artist, and uh, as they at last year that was their fifth year anniversary, and they were looking for some special projects, and uh, I pitched this animation project to them, and so uh, again, I I kind of functioned completely as sort of like a I guess curator slash visionary for the project and then i i worked with four artists who incidentally all have london ontario ties in some way shape or form in their history mm -hmm. and uh we kind of met several times and talked about what it would mean to um approach a kind of animation and how we would do it and so we broke it down to like of course the four panel form is, is still locked into place as kind of the overarching structure um but every panel was created um, on its own singularly, and uh, and each artist created like a set of X number of panels, um, and we would share the panels in our own private kind of online space um, each time one was created. And so they were the kind of idea was to kind of create narrative opportunities in a way, like so introducing sort of characters, and it's a completely silent. Uh, piece so there's no like there are no dialogue bubbles or things like that but there are a lot of things that are moving and objects appearing and and then artists if one artist used an object or like a it could be a vase in in the background then another artist tried to embed a vase into one of their later sort of things so continuing motifs yeah, yeah. and then and then we sort of got together and sort of strung them into these four panel moments in a way and sometimes one panel appears in a four panel sequence and later appears in a different four panel sequence and the idea was that 
each four panel sequence would contain one panel from one of these four artists. So it's like this complete experiment in, I guess, like creating moving comic panels and then remixing them over and over into these readable four panel sequences. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of loops in the gallery, uh, all these iterations and uh, people can stay and watch it all the way through, or they can just watch a series of several of the four panel strips and, uh, it just keeps shuffling. Because you're part of the gallery scene and also like the Canadian and, you know, kind of high literary scene, uh, you, you know, you're one of the first people that we've ever had on that, that is part of that. And I wanted to get you sort of your idea, your impression of like, what is the attitude of people in that scene and the galleries and in, you know, the literary scene of comics? It used to be... I mean, we have people that come on and say, like, when they went to art school and they said they wanted to do comics, they sort of got, they sort of got like the, oh, well, comics isn't really art in in that sense. But that's that attitude seems to be changing given how many exhibits involve comics now yeah. that even you've been a part of. So, what is your read from people that are that are part of that scene, the gallery scene, the literary scene? What's their attitude towards comics now? Well, you know, everyone used to like you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like you would hear like high and you'd hear low. Right. And those exactly. distinctions had like really kind of like this was either high or it was low. Yeah. Which which pile do we put things in? And that sort of like effectively dropped away in our culture. You know, okay. I mean, like for any smart kind of creator and any kind of young thinker, I think they don't really care about high or low. They don't care about... um you know, like many of the categories that really seem to obsess people in the past. Um, so I think there's a real kind of healthy dialogue, I think, um, and uh, between sort of, um, you know, the gallery scene and sort of the comic scene. I was I was just involved, again, weirdly in London, Ontario, there seems to be a lot of activity there, in a great museum show that had... Um, you know, a range of, of comic artists in the gallery showing their original works and other works. You know, Seth showed the um, the, the models that he makes of, like, the cities. Of the and, cities, yeah. um, You know, I got to show, like, water jet cut aluminum, uh, like, comic book sound effects that I make, like, roughly the size of that shark you have on your wall which is like uh you know four four or five feet in 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 length um and then i showed uh some of my blackout comics pages and uh so we were we were just given the freedom to show whatever you know we thought had a residue of like the comics culture but also could sort of translate to the gallery and i, I thought the show was really great and diverse and um you know, we had, uh, like, it was really interesting to see all those things talking. And I and I think those same things are happening in the museum, and they're happening in print, and they're happening just in, in, in the culture in general. Like, there are plenty of comic artists who like art galleries, and there are plenty of people who hang out in art galleries or read literary magazines that also collect comics. And it's not just pop art anymore, or like Roy Lichtenstein sort of thing. You know, I think that used to be a thing. Like whenever you thought of like comics in a gallery, that's sort of what you thought. That's sort of what you thought of, right? Yeah. Well, poor old Roy, right? I mean, he had a yeah. great career, so you can't you can't feel too bad for him. But I mean, he sort of is like the enemy of like right. a certain exactly. generation of comic artists. Exactly. Um, and yet, you know, he did something really relevant and interesting, and um, you know, probably opened up like a lot of space within the thinking around gallery culture for comic artist to kind of squeeze in so like if you're smart take that space you know right right yeah. exactly yeah okay cool man well this has been really great and really illuminating um 
I just want to, you know, for the for the listeners, if you're online or you want to check out Four Panel, if you want to purchase uh, any of the Four Panel books, uh, where can people find you and engage uh, in your work and the Four Panel project? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, if you just want to read a bunch of uh, free strips, interesting sort of experiments, uh, there's always new work at fourpanel.ca. If you want to support um, our publications, including the two four-panel anthologies and the kind of stream of graphic novels that will be coming out this year and into next year, uh, that's Pop Noir Editions. And so it's you can start at popnoir.ca um, or you can uh, just Google Pop Noir Editions. That's awesome. Uh, are you on social media at all? Yeah, you know, it like still trying to sort of sort things out. I mean, Carousel Magazine is on social media. Um, uh, Four Panel is on social media via Instagram. Um, uh, you know, I have my own website. Like, so it's just a matter of like, you know, searching for some of those leads. Yeah. That's awesome. Google is a great thing. Uh, okay. Well, you guys have been listening to Mark LaLiberty. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you in. I hope, I hope this was a interview worth your time oh it was i had a great time awesome awesome and uh, we'll see you next time on speech bubble this has been speech bubble the podcast that goes one-on-one with toronto's comic book luminaries see you next time Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.